Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Should we start small or big today? I want to start big. Okay, let's do the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is a big one. It's got many tentacles. We had a men's retreat, Henry and I and two other guys. Um, it included psilocybin and MDMA at one point. It was a beautiful experience. I learned a lot about myself. I will share that with you in the hopes that it helps you as well. There were a lot of interesting things, and one of them was that in the opening talking circle, one of the things that the um, facilitator, who was a woman, brought up was patriarchy. And you knew it as soon as that word was said. <laughs> flashes. In flashes. Red. A I, flashback. <laughs> it was such a nice, like, calm experience. We were settling into the room. There was sage. Uh, we were sitting Indian style, and she opened, I'd like to start with a little reading. <laughs> this one is about the patriarchy. And I looked over at Charlie <laughs> And I knew it was on, so go ahead. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of caveats that I want to give. And the first is that I realized immediately, because as she said the word, I was like, oh, God. And then she said what it meant to her in that context. I was like, I completely subscribe to that. So I think the way that you define the word, I could be completely in agreement with you or totally in disagreement. And it's one of those words that is kind of a weasel word, and people use it to serve all different kinds of agendas. So that's one of the things that I first realized. But she said, you know, in terms of this, one of the things that you guys can begin to think about is is how the gender expectations on men, like men don't cry, or if they're too sensitive, it's gay, and if you're gay, that's undesirable. And if, you know, all of the things that uh, American mainstream society puts on both girls, but in this case it was a men's retreat, young boys— how that has impacted you. Um, and I thought that was a fantastic prompt. I totally believe that there are gendered expectations that limit uh, people's ability to authentically express themselves. And so I settled down. <laughs> I settled into it as well. I was, uh, there was one thing after, re <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let you, you break it down, but there was one part she left out. Mm. Well, go ahead. I don't know what you're I've looked up the definition of patriarchy mm -hmm. and it says it's a system of, or societal or government in which men hold all the power and women are largely excluded from it. Yes. And her definition was much more nuanced. It's like a domineering system of men dominating other men. I was mm -hmm. like, I know that in my life, like mm -hmm. bullied, bullying other men. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just was waiting for that one little like, and you're not allowed to be here too, right? Yeah. It, so, so there's, this is one of the things is, one of the first questions is, in your definition of the patriarchy, is the review of history and of current society and of current American society that implies a um, sort of a battle of the sexes? Yes. That it is um, a cohort of men do, looking out for men, doing things that benefit men who have the financial and political power. Uh, m primarily, or at least if you chose in this word, it's a really important way, operating against the interests of women. Or is it a small group of people that happen to be men operating against the interests of anyone else? Uh, and that distinction seems very important because I wouldn't dispute that a small group of people have had power at every stage of human history and they haven't always acted within the interests of society at large. What I would say, though, is that it, the, it's not primarily been categorized as men versus women. It's been tribe versus tribe. It's been, I think, Jordan Peterson points out primarily the domination is nature oppressing men with storms and scarcity and plague and famine. Um, 
And so to say that we live in a system or to believe that we live in a system that is primarily or foundationally characterized as men versus women, I don't think is true, even if you can point to uh, legislation that might uh, privilege men over women. I think a prime example of this that I was just seeing as we talked about is like, take a look at Afghanistan. They just barred women from being able to go to college. Uh, that is certainly a piece of cultural or legislative thing that privileges being a man over being a woman and, and strips power from all women collectively in that society. So that is something that um, is, yeah, I think a prime example of, of patriarchy. Yes. The problem that I had, and we had a different discussion, is implied for a lot of people in patriarchy is that the way to solve this is by elevating women to positions of power. And I think that that misses that this isn't like what happened in Afghanistan, for instance, is not primarily men versus women. It's religious fundamentalism dominating everything. And so this is one tendril where um, there are certain roles that men are expected to play and women are expected to play an inferior role. But that is actually um, secondary to this overwhelming belief that we're going to read this book. We're going to do it like things were done in the Stone Age. We're going to uh, stone gaze and uh, kill infidels and do all kinds of other crazy things. And the way that you combat that is not by elevating women to positions of power, because if you elevate female religious fundamentalists to positions of power in the Taliban, not much changes. Uh, what you need to do is find the actual root of it, which you could argue is religious fundamentalism. You could argue is lack of education. You could argue about it, but I would, I do not believe that the root of it is men versus women. I believe that that is merely an outcropping of this other uh, mind ideological issue. Uh, and so when you call it a patriarchy, I think you can, while you might be correct in some of the uh, the visible things that it expresses, you are not identifying the piece that needs to change in order for things to get better across the board. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I think what's interesting uh, was the actual conversation is like, I knew all this background about your experience with looking at Jordan Peterson's way of looking at the patriarchy mm -hmm. and the way our conversation went was like, so let me, let me slow. We later, after our first day, which was beautiful and we all learned about each other and it was, it was heartfelt and amazing and, you know, got to explore the ways in which in some cases our, our, um, imposed gender roles limited our authentic expression of ourselves. We were then hanging out, chatting afterwards. And I said, it was a decompressing moment. <laughs> I had slipped into the hot tub. Ah, oh, long day of sky time, ready to just turn my brain off. And Charlie said, so what did you mean by the patriarchy? And everyone was just like, we're going to do this now. Um, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think what we were sorting through was that underlining principles. You were figuring out what they meant so you could then tell them what your idea is. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that really fascinating is this move towards subjective experience then tied to a larger societal idea. Yeah, I, I um, can break that down if yeah, you if want. You, so I said, what is the patriarchy? And it was, well, it's a system of male domination and it's often associated with whiteness. And, you know, it was like a whole, in my opinion, and I love this facilitator. She's helped me so tremendously in my life. And this is not at all a dig on her. This is me disagreeing with the idea. 
there was a whole panoply of like woke buzzwords that were kind of in there that, you know, three more alarms <laughs> went problematic. off in my head. Problematic. Problematic. Whiteness. whiteness. Um, I don't think it was said, but heteronormativity was probably colorism. You know, all of these things just started to like, okay. And I, <laughs> so I was ready to go. Um, and as we talked, what you pointed out that was interesting is I said, you know, I feel like these things, uh, that's not how I view it, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, let me give you an example of my life. When I was younger, I said that I wanted to be a doctor. And a man nearby said, don't you mean nurse? And in that moment, she said that she felt her heart sink. It was like the bottom dropped out. And I imagined that it was, oh my gosh, my dreams are not achievable because of who I am. And that is absolutely not anything that I want to happen. I don't think that we should do that to little girls. I don't think we should do that to little boys who say they want to be nurses. I don't think, uh, I think the fewer, uh, I think we really need to explore the limitations that we place on children and make sure that the limitations that we place on them are actually in their best interest and not in the interest of serving a worldview that makes us feel safe. Um, so yeah, probably don't let them cross the street without looking both ways, but if they want to be a nurse or a doctor, we can explore why we think that that wasn't a good idea, you know, and I, and I don't agree with that. Um, but what was interesting is as she was talking, uh, it started to become clear, and I didn't really get it until after the hot tub, is that I think whatever ideology or whatever ism or whatever issue you have with the world or whatever, um, if you really love capitalism or communism or dem Democrats or Republicans or you've got an issue with the patriarchy or you've got an issue with the gynocracy and you're super red pill, I find increasingly that this says much more about the person than it does about the world. And I think that, and I know that I've done this because I, when I look back at the things that I've been extremely fired up by in my life, uh, and the way that I understood the world to be, it was almost always me universalizing my experience so as not to really point to the real issues in my life that harm me and get to say, this is, the government is doing this or the Democrats or the Republicans or whatever. So in my life, I mentioned this to you, it looked like when I was in college, you could predict my political stance by just asking who the underdog was. So in any sort of like America versus uh, Latin America, I was always with Latin America. Um, Israel versus Palestine, I was with Palestine without knowing anything. And by the way, I don't know anything about it. Um, any sort of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, I just had to look at who the weaker one was and I associated with them. And I think that's because I self-identified as an underdog. And expected people with power to take advantage of people without, which definitely is a principle the world works by, but it is not a guarantee. Um, it is not always true that the person with less power is the person who is in the right, nor is it true that the nation with less power is, you know, the nation that ought to receive my moral support. Um, and so, yeah, so that conversation sort of got me thinking. I wrote down a handful that I saw this week. I can pull them up. But one of them was... Uh, well, I also want to know, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to also know, what is it about you? Because this was an uncomfortable moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Would make you feel comfortable enough to state your opinion, feel strong and confident enough in your belief to be fearless in what seemed like basically a two-on-one conversation. I didn't chime in at all. I was just mm -hmm. looking at the stars. And uh, yeah, 
how did you navigate what would be a scary conversation for mm. me as I was experiencing it? She's, I trust her deeply. She's taken, um, this is a facilitator that I've worked with many times. And so I care about her. I want to connect with her. And if I'm hiding anything from her, I will, it will come up in my next journey and I will say it. Gotcha. I feel like I can hide it <laughs> No, no. Ev- almost, which is beautiful. Every slight upset that I've ever experienced with her, eventually I just blurt out in a journey with oh. her. And... This was, this was it. This was the, so I was like, let me, six hours. let me take care of this beforehand. Um, and she has always proven to be a really wonderful listener and has, um, you know, modeled uh, a way for people to uh, have upsets and for me to repair with her and her to repair. Like it's, she's just been, you know, the, the quintessential helpful therapist in that regard. And also I do want to have a human relationship with her, but that isn't like just one way, like, Hey, I have an issue. I have an issue. I want to, inv- I do hope that she feels invited to um, share things that I've done that are upsetting. Gotcha. But the other thing was um, genuine interest. And also what I said is that the way that I've often heard this term used, and I'm not saying that she was doing it in the moment, is to enforce um, rules around gendered hiring, uh, rules like around um, who's able to speak in a conversation to say, well, you're not allowed to, um, to denigrate the idea in favor of the identity, which to me seems to be the exact opposite of what we want to do. And this was my point to her as I spoke, as I said, in that example of that guy who, you know, did that to you, we could certainly look at that and say, that is a man, you know, um, exerting power and domination over a woman. But I think the broader principle is that that's not just patriarchy, it's materialism. It's him taking your external, unchosen, unimportant to the fact of the matter features and negating the internal of your experience, capacity, interest, um, and heart. And if we look at just patriarchy, you know, we will have these solutions that are we need more women in positions of power and we can wind up with a world that looks very much like our own except we will have more women in positions of power. Um, yes, I thought her her historical analysis of the word patriarchy was interesting, but I thought you went a layer deeper and saying, then how do we distribute goods, services, and help based on how you describe patriarchy? Isn't there a better way? Yes. So we then got to talking about privilege. Yes. And my issue, which I've talked about on the podcast with privilege, if it's it's often conceived of an extremely narrow um, what is it? Narrow group identities. So white has privilege over non-white. Man has privilege over non-man. Uh, straight has privilege over non-straight. And for some people, if you know really those three identifiers, and then maybe one or two other, like are you, you know, or do you have a disability or something like that? Um, they can then rank you on who gets to speak, who gets into college, who gets this job, who sh- who ought to be on stage, etc. And my understanding of privilege, which I think is a really important concept, is that you want to take into account all of the ways in which our society elevates external things that do not fundamentally matter to give some people advantages and other people disadvantages. And you want to create a society that doesn't do that. And by the way, there are so many. Um, and also, 
it's not just society. There are privileges that are like, if your dad didn't beat you when you were a kid or you had two parents, these are not just society. This is like, a this is a, you're um, just advantaged existing in the world in terms of your internal ability to connect with your feelings or succeed in your career if you have certain things. And so we also, as a society, I think want to look at people who through no fault of their own do not have some of those privileges and create ways for them to catch up so that when we have a capitalist competition for power and uh, the people, so that the people who are ascending to the highest and even the mid-tiers of power are those who uh, have competency, who work hard and are not merely those that were born into a tiny class of people with the most privilege that started so far ahead in the race that the others could never catch up to them. We want as many people starting as close to the same starting line as we can, I think, for all of our benefits. Um, That, of course, runs into problems when you're like, okay, well, we're going to make sure that um, if you start incentivizing bad behavior, if you say, okay, well, every kid without a dad is going to get all of these advantages that we're going to collectively put on them, then you will have free riders who go, well, I'm just going to have a bunch of kids and make sure that there's no dad there because, (laughs) and and you could screw up the incentive structure. So, um, but broadly, that was one of the things that, that we spoke about was privilege. And with, I realized in the conversation, I was trying to make two points. One is that I think that patriarchy is just a narrow mid-tier view of what is happening in the world. And I say mid because I think there are uh, the materialist part of it, the elevating of the external over the internal is a much more comprehensive way to view what is going on and it will create much better solutions. You will not just replace men with women in positions of power or domineering. You know, you you will uh, really start to care about all of the internal as opposed to the external. And uh, the second one was noting in other people and myself how... Political discussions are almost never about the world. They are about the individual who has taken their life experience and universalized it so not to have to confront some of the biggest challenges in their life. And I'm not saying that's what she was doing. I noted it in myself because one of the things that makes me resist patriarchy as a term so much I realized throughout this journey if you want to chime in now, growing, I'm, growing I'm moving on to chapter two. <laughs> I'm not sure what chapter two is, but I also <laughs> want to touch on a few points here, which was, uh, are you going to talk about the matriarchy in your life? Yes. Yes. And are you going also to talk? I have a story of, in my own experience about that. Um, and yeah, this connection with just your subjective experience into a larger idea, uh, our experience with the matriarchy um, as we see it. And um, there was one more point I had with the patriarchy that I wanted to get into. Oh, and then this last part of, um, like, I think there's a charisma learning moment on how to effectively navigate these situations where you can win people to your side or at least stay strong in your in your uh, position, which was like, this was occurring at a time where we were all in the hot tub. And I swear to God, when Charlie spoke, everyone got out of the hot tub <laughs> and sat and like cooled off for a minute. Yeah. And then as he like rested, then they like slowly slipped in. It was very strange. And I was very highly in tune what was going on because I just had a journey. But it, yeah, it's like, um, there's like, a, I think a charisma learn, learning moment in there. I mean, I'm not saying I handled it extremely well. I think our friend suggested what he made me realize later was that 
these political conversations, if even if people approach you with abstract ideas about capitalism, communism, patriarchy, etc., if you engage with them on that level, you are missing the point. Um, at 35 years old, I need to be smart enough and wise enough to recognize that people are talking about themselves, their experience, and uh, no one here is is voting for the actual system that the world is going to live. And so I need to consider and ask why, what happened in your life that made you think this? Because to say, oh no, this is just an objective reading of history that I find um, compelling, and if you provide a more compelling version of history, I will move, is clearly not true. That does not, that is not borne out in my life experience. People dig in because they often have very personal ties to the ideologies and the worldviews that they subscribe to. Yeah, even in the question, me asking it was like uh, thinking of a specific moment at the coffee shop where I was like, I left that feeling like I wanted to do better. Um, but I don't want to throw you off your point because I think what you're getting into next with the matriarchy and, and your personal experience is reflective of my own. So, mm. so yeah, I wouldn't call it the matriarchy, but one of the reasons... We could call it... We could. <laughs> that's, that's not how I conceive of it. <laughs> one of the reasons that I, um, I think internally, emotionally resist the idea of the patriarchy is for the you know some of the argumentations that I made before, but also because... While there have been experiences in my life that I have been um, victim of and probably also perpetrated of like male domination, male teasing, male power, etc., there's a different and more subtle kind. And the one for me that feels most powerful is female power that is often exerted quite differently. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that this is my boss or my whatever, but it is... It is um, the thing to which I have found myself most reactive in my own life. Um, and so there's a lot of examples, but one of them that just very personally came up in the next day of the journey, which I wasn't planning on, was um, growing up, and I didn't know this at the time, and I'm starting to piece together how and why I am the way that I am every time I have another one of these journeys, is that mom, our mom, who I love, and uh, will talk to and have talked to about these sorts of things, I told her this, um, had a lot of anxiety and I had also learned to deny her anxiety. So the thing that we laugh with her is we go, Hey mom, how you feeling? You, you look a little bit worried. She goes, I'm not worried. I'm just saying. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so she'll come to you with like a, are you sure about that? Mom, you sound pretty worried. I'm not worried. I'm just saying. Just saying there could be <laughs> bears in the road. <laughs> it's not bear season and you live in Arizona, but there could be bears. <laughs> so there's, um, as, a, as an adult, that is a funny thing that we can point to and laugh at and I can see. I think as a child, that tendency to deny anxiety and say, I'm not worried, the world is dangerous, I, I picked up on. I know I picked up on as a yeah. kid and I felt it. And one of the things that I experienced in my journey was what I perceived to be a lack of mom believing in me. Um, and it was extremely painful. It felt like a hole. I was like, there's a hole where I would feel that her believing in me. And zoomed out, I know that it wasn't her lack of belief in me. It was just her general anxiety that I was picking up on. But when I struggled, and the prime example is like, I, I did wrestling. I actually, when I was probably in sixth grade or something, I picked it up pretty quickly. And in my first tournament, I think I got second or third place. And I was wrestling against older kids and um, the guy who won, 
didn't even pin me. He beat me like six to one in points or something. And I was simultaneously so proud of that, but also there's like this <gasps> gasping person in there's the crowd. There's person in the crowd. <laughs> like just so terrified. And not just that experience, but like the general feeling of me creating pain, anxiety, and fear in my mom through my struggle is something that I experienced on that. And that to me created, again, I couldn't process this at the time, a ton of feelings. One, I felt emasculated, like I couldn't protect her enough um, from my own failure, which seemed to pain her so much. Uh, at least that's how I perceived it, which I know is not necessarily the truth. Um, two, it created like anger because it the way that I then did things was I learned to not learn in public. Um, I didn't know this is what fed it, but my whole life... I took a ton of pride in being the type of person who didn't try and things came too quickly. And what I didn't realize is that I was working extremely hard on the inside in my head to like listen to the teacher while he was lecturing, figure out what types of questions would be on the test, know how to answer a, answer a multiple choice question without knowing the answer, um, all while not doing my homework, putting my head down on the desk, um, telling people that I didn't study, which was true, you know, not doing the reading, but trying to make myself as good of a, of, of a passive sponge as I could possibly be. And I took so much pride in that. And I hid my, you know, never let anyone catch me doing any work, which I really didn't in high school, except constantly internally. <laughs> except all of the time. Except all of the time. And so that has had an effect on everything in my life it means that I am learning that I rest even though I can look like a very lazy person in my like the way that I, I don't rest like other people often do uh even when I'm doing nothing there's I'm like conversations are running in my head which I know a lot of people experience it uh ways that I'll communicate what I want to communicate on the podcast people often ask how are you so articulate it's because I'm training constantly all day we go to the gym and this dude is debating people in his head <laughs> at, between sets and i'm like who are you talking to it's become a running joke and you're like, just beating this guy up right now it's just like okay dude uh can you start lifting um yes and that's partially why i wanted to name this podcast dropping in for the new iteration is because i'm trying to lose that i'm trying to um be much more present in the moment, be much more without my structures of what I am going to say and mm. sink into not my head, but my heart, um, which is part of it. So, and, and I find myself like right now a little bit lost because I don't know where I'm going, but it's, it's a new and exciting thing for me. So back to the mom stuff. Um, well, I think the full loop here as well is that we started on like patriarchy, men dominating mm -hmm. men. And now yeah. you've realized you. um, in our lives, I don't know about your mom, yeah. but <laughs> my mom, go ahead. Yes, that one of the, and that, that my point being that I am also subject to this, which is like my pushback against the word patriarchy is in part because of the things that I said, but it is also because I've been trying to identify what I have felt as this subtle pressure and control from and of women. And it's not just my mom because that sort of formed the template that I then went out into the world and the women that I try to date are often women 
who um, whose anxiety I can help. It makes me feel such peace to be able to like do what I could not do in childhood, which is like find someone who uh, is having a problem, particularly a woman, and through my hard work and effort and solving it or doing the thing for them or giving them great advice, move them through it very quickly. That has really, that has become a foundational thing that attracts me to women is that ability to like be a helpful mentor. Um, and what that hasn't done that I've talked about shifting is like it has made me less receptive to like genuine partnership where I am in the learning position for a tremendous amount of time. Uh, that for me is so uncomfortable because I'm so uncomfortable being in that scene as a uh, someone who is struggling to get it. I like to get things immediately. Um, and so, yeah, that that dynamic, which is set up in my life, which is not just external power, but is, you know, this this thing that is existing inside of me that is feels feminine in nature and um, the feminine power that is exerted, it's not, I don't know if it's feminine or female, the power that is exerted over me is uh, when I see women that I care about who are anxious, I snap into action. Yeah, the behavior that gets you to be controlled. Boom. I, I like, it's not power to other people. They're just like, Okay, stop yes. talking at me. Yes. To me, I have can be a slave to that. And you have pointed this out in relationships that I've had where, like, if I'm with someone and they're having a hard time or they're crying, like... All hands on deck. Let's yes. go. Yes. Um, and the way that I've dealt with it that I'm learning is, like, I either can... This is an immature way. Early in relationship, I am able to be like, I can cut that off. I don't care. You know, I'm not going to deal with that. But it's almost like a methinks thou doth protest too much. Like my outward facade of being so unaffected is me really, really trying to avoid that dynamic that can kick in so easily for me, which is like your problems are my problems. And that's the codependency thing that I've mentioned that I have not learned to create containers and be a supportive help to people in my life by I'm like learning what it means to be supportive without solving problems for other people uh, at this point in my life. And I'll let you know how that, how that, how goes. that goes. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm still, I'm still um, getting there. And I will say one of the things that has been such a godsend is uh, charisma on command is the opposite in many ways of how I've worked in my life. How I work in my personal life, uh, let me run you through it. Yeah, I'm confused. Is there someone who's close to me, my mom, a girlfriend, she's got a problem and I am on top of that problem. I am trying to fix it. I'm trying to teach. Here's the course. Here's the book. We'll do it together. I'll sit down with you. We'll create a time. Okay, you missed that time. I'll just give you the summary. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't worry. Okay, you didn't do the meditation that I told you. Well, I'll hold your hand and we'll do it together. Like, I'm going to get you to get over this problem fast. because She's going to control you to do Because get her your anxiety her is so bothersome to me that yeah. I can't stand yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you can't stand it. I can't stand it. Um, versus Charisma on Command is like, I put this video up and you don't have to watch it. 10 million people can watch it. 9 million of them click off in the first minute. I don't care. And then some percentage make it to the end and see a tremendous amount of value in their life if they apply it. And so the ability to like offer advice but not force its reception is something that has been allowed to me in Charisma on Command. The advice is out there. It's for whoever wants it. Nobody has to take it. And that is 
the beauty of the internet for me. It's like, it's been a way for me to get this advice out of my system <laughs> into the world in a way where I'm not reenacting that crappy pattern of like needing a particular individual to please take this advice so that they can solve their problem so that they can solve my problem because my problem becomes their problem instantaneously. Yeah, it seems like- Or by their the, problem becomes my problem, yeah. The giant audience mass was at first, especially for me, scary to get something out of because I was so worried about the codependent relationship I thought I had with their perception of me. And it seems like by working through that first, mm -hmm. now you can do it with on the individual basis. Like, Not to say you don't care, but like you care less about putting a video out. That's amazing. Uh, that probably wasn't how it happened on your first videos. Was no, it? no. So no, you, I you needed started. I needed the individual commenters to like it. When it <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. That guys didn't like it. That's I a had a very direct relationship <laughs> with the first commenters. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, but it has taught me something that I think I can begin to apply to my own life, which is like you can offer help, but you cannot receive help for someone else. And you have to also recognize when you are offering help to solve your own problem. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm working on is not only do I have an issue with me learning publicly, I struggle with other people learning in my presence. And it can be them struggling to find a word in a sentence that I feel like I know. It's like holding myself back from jumping in and saying it. If I feel like I know where they're going, I want to get in. Like that slowness of watching someone work through and develop things, what feels extremely slow to me, um, has limited my ability to be a really effective teacher one-on-one -on -one. Mm. Um, because when people don't get it, I'm not mean. I jump in and do it for them, um, and that is not good. Or I have to totally disconnect. Like I can't just sit there and watch someone struggle. Uh, and I actually think that part, I'm not sure, I'm not there yet, I imagine that part of parenting is being able to like, hold your center while for instance your kid walks around and falls over a whole bunch and like being there is supportive but not being on top <clears throat> not being on top of them um or so nervous that they're going to fall or that they're going to like it you really kind of have to be able to watch someone you love struggle constantly because it's it's only at the edge of that struggle that they find their new capacity um and of course you can do training wheels and you can hold their hand and all those kinds of things. Yeah, we can go deep down this. I definitely feel like we're both a little scared to have children because we're going to fuck it up. But um, Yeah, no, that was that that came up for me as well, which um, was Go ahead. Yeah, that's a deeper rabbit hole into the the psyche of why not? Where are you in this? Are you satiating that kid's anxiety by like or your own anxiety by not letting them suffer when suffering is the way you learn through things? Mm -hmm. Um yeah, you just stated it. Um yeah, I, I wanted to like wait until I could have a kid without having to have them suffer for on and it's just like, oh shit, this is this is the game. Like you're going to die. Yeah, well <laughs> that, and for you to become capable, you must struggle, suffer, want mom and dad to step in and have them not do it. And that is like that, you know, everyone experiences that I imagine with like, do we go into their room? They're crying. Like there has to be a point where you Go, I have supported you and you need to find the resources inside yourself. And I imagine that parenting is that lesson over and over and over and over and Ooh. over again. Yeah, it's heavy, heavy, heavy. shit. Um, so, and you never know if you're doing it right, <laughs> which is, gosh, not fair, not fun. No. 
Uh, and then they make a podcast about you 35 <laughs> years later. And they complain about <laughs> how you screwed it up 30 years later. Um, you do the next topic you were getting into, because uh, we filmed this already, was your philosophy of Western medicine. You had an interesting statistic you looked at in a um, book you were reading. This is a really, really short one, but it was, let me see if I can pull it up. All right. Uh, it's, it's, this is from Gabor Mate's new book. Uh, 60% of adults are on a prescription drug. I believe in the United States of America. I didn't write it down. But uh, 40% are on two prescription drugs. And it just, the, the, how do we get it to three? How do we get it, how do we get it to three? <laughs> the modality is all screwed up, man. It's that people want pills. And if you tell them breath work for 25 minutes every day will have a tremendous impact and it's uncomfortable to do, they would rather drive to the doctor, spend the money on gas, do the copay to find the pill. And uh, I'm not saying that everything can be solved by breath work, but uh, the idea that you have a problem, a chemical imbalance is, you know, the often the thing that people say that needs to be solved by pharmaceuticals is just unfortunate and I think keeps people sick, um, far more people sick than need to be. It's not to say we should shut down hospitals or stop prescribing medicine it's just that uh that cultural tendency is not good for people you want to know something crazy sure the average primary care physician spends an average of eight minutes per patient mm. and so i got that statistic from the guy who was on um joe rogan his name was brigham bueller um he was a drug rep in the 90s and he has a fascinating story of just being given like a twenty thousand dollar stipend per month where he had to go out and find doctors mm-hmm wine and dine them and then like pitch them his newest drug that he was working with for Pfizer or like, you know, you guys got to start selling Cialis like Viagra is not as good. Yeah. Um, and it was this really interesting, uh, relationship dynamic that he talked about, which is, I said yesterday on the last cast, which like in the 1950s, the doctor knew your family, everything about you, when you were born, your weight every year was a checkup. Um, and today it's like, I avoid the doctor at all costs. I only go in, I pay a minimum dollar of like the lowest copay I can find. And I'm like, dude, I'm sick. Give me the pill. Mm-hmm. Um, and up until recently, there wasn't very much preventative care. And like I just said, primary care physicians, the way their model's built is they're trying to get reimbursement from the insurance company. And so they're just trying to move through patients. So like you're saying you need a pill, you want to know, like, okay. let's get the easiest thing I can do. And they advertise to the end customer. You know what I mean? Like all the commercials on the football shows, those aren't doctors. It's like, ask your doctor. Oh, about, yeah, you're right. Like you got to go in and tell him what you need because you were watching football and you saw six Lipitor commercials or whatever. And who's the bouncy guy? Was Olaf? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think I need that. Because <laughs> yeah. That guy was sweet. He bounced <laughs> and then he was happy. That's the, yeah. The, the business model for it is Screwed not, up. not good. <laughs> I can't do it, but it, yeah, it was just really interesting to hear just the screwed up and how broken the healthcare system is. It's not really, <clears throat> I don't have any solutions. It's just, uh, incentive structures are messed up. This yeah. guy is selling to the doctor and taking them out to steaks. You're then going in there and telling me sick. He's like, well, I just got this new one in. It yeah. was a really good steak dinner that I had over it. And, um, God, yeah, I don't know how to fix that, but uh, I listened to the same podcast and it was screwed up. If you guys want to check it out, Henry, you said his name earlier, but he yeah, was, Brigham he was Bueller, super, super interesting guy. I'm going to get Morgan. him on the cast. <laughs> the, uh, so let's bounce over to some other topics. Is there anything left on patriarchy? I mean, the, the broad thing I think I said, which is 
I don't think it's the most useful lens through which to use through which to um, describe society, even though you can point to parts where it's like, oh, this is like an example of a patriarchal law that is privileges men over women and we would want to disrupt that. Uh, I don't think that that frame gets you to the best solutions. I think a better frame is the broader one that I described with materialism, which is my, um, the other thing. Also, yeah, nice I think it, it, and, and it does have a lopsided um it implies to many that it's men versus women. And what you see is men versus men. And, you know, really it's just like close groups of kin taking care of their own. Those include men and women uh, against others. And really at the foundationally, there's a harsh, unforgiving world that is not offering easily food and clean water and abundance to all. Um, Yeah. And that we've had to carve out our own place and that we've, collectively actually made quite comfortable at least for some though there are many that don't even have clean water still so let's bounce i got a couple trump's tax returns you want to go there we could do that this one could be long because i haven't thought so my thought was the same thing that i my initial selfish thought whenever i see rich people's taxes is i'm a fucking idiot here i am like Every time the accountant goes, he goes, we could write this off. I go, well, like, I want, I want an accountant that does the things that feel right, but not the <laughs> things that don't feel right. You know, like, okay, that's not true. Or that's not, that's, you know, I'm not supposed to. Like, the rich people are supposed to pay. And I certainly am in the rich class. But there's a class above me that is, doesn't get, <laughs> the president of the United States, I think that, it's fair to that say that he's ju- above you. That just lives like a billionaire while buying real estate and other assets that they can write off and taking out debt and spending that money and effectively, um, honestly, I have to look. Yeah, Here, like, I can actually just give you some context. Yeah. So they did a uh, audit of Trump, former President Trump from 2015 to 2020. Uh, through the five-year span, he paid taxes, I think, twice. Um, the, the report just came out yesterday. It's going to come out uh, mm-hmm. fully in about three days. And like you said, he had all these losses dating back to 2009 when he had $700 million worth of losses also running forward each year. So, and mm-hmm. he has real estate and he has like some income and interest he's making per year around 15 to $20 million that he's making at least on the interest of his, all of his uh, properties and money. And then he just has a larger amount that he's expensing, which gives him a negative uh, tax write-off. Ta- yeah. Tax write-off, and therefore he pays zero dollars in federal tax, mm-hmm. which I think he did three times in the last in that in five that five-year span. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I was asking myself the question because, what is the ethical basis for taxes, and how should we? How should I think about it? How should people think about it? Was was sort of the foundational question that I didn't I didn't come to the bottom of this, but. There seems to be a broadly held belief that even though we'll say in political campaigns, we want everyone to pay their fair share, when it comes to the individual, rich, poor, whatever, I don't know that anyone has ever not taken a deduction. Tell me who's paying more in taxes. Yeah, like who who wants to – so it seems like the way that people, even though they might say we want everyone to pay their fair share, the way that they operate, no matter what class they're in, is that they – view the government as an aggressive force that they need to take every legal protection 
against. Um, and sometimes illegal. Sometimes people like, you know, not rep- like you worked at um, the club, people not reporting their tips and dollars. Like nobody that I have ever seen is trying to pay their fair share according to the tax code. They take every single corner that they can get legally and sometimes gray area, like, you know, under the table pay and those sorts of things. And that approach to taxes is then scaled up to the richest people in America who can have full-time employees whose job it is to make a tax strategy that makes them pay nominally dollar less than people who make one one hundredth of they make because they're not paying anything. They're just, you know, accumulating real estate, taking out. So we talk about paying your fair share, but then every individual is out there trying to beat the system (laughs) is what it seems like. I don't know that I've ever talked to, there's a handful of people just like, I just do it. I just pay it. I've I've seen that. Um, And so I've asked myself something to which I do not have the answer, which is like, how do you operate in a collective where everybody is trying to rip off the tax code? Like, do you participate in that game as well to the average level that your neighbor does? Uh, Do you not participate and just go, look, these are the tax rates that I have. I'm only going to take the extremely clear deductions. And like, but even then, what if there's a deduction for buying a cow and calling my house a farm? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, dude, he bought a cemetery. And yeah, yeah. He, you know all. His, no, like, I don't his, know this shit. All, but it's like his vehicles have, are incredible. If all that like matters is legality, savings. then why? Then and my job is to reduce my tax burden to the max. You, it is Donald Trump is inevitable. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I might screw this up. I believe he constructed a golf course, mm-hmm. put a cemetery in the length of a side in in it, mm-hmm. and uh, depending on the article he wrote, was a write-off for the entire golf course because cemeteries are untaxed properties. And it's depending on the article you wrote. Yeah. You read, like, no, just genius tax vehicle versus no, mm-hmm. this is illegal. Um, but yeah. So that kind of stuff proves, I think, the point that I'm trying to make, which is... If you have a population that is trying to pay as little as possible, and some of those people are rich, I do not care how many loopholes you close. There will always be another way for them to pay less. And you can have wider loopholes and more narrow loopholes, and you can certainly try to aim towards more narrow. But when I think about the ethical position, if we all just go, well, our job is to... um, the government's job is to try to get as much, and our tra- job is given our means to try to give as little, which seems to be what I, like, people take every deduction allowed to them. I'm, and maybe there are people out there that seriously look through the deductions they get and go, you know what, I don't need this one, or this one doesn't seem right, even though I'm totally legally entitled to it. I just haven't seen that person, <laughs> you know? No, go on Instagram, you'll find, you could rent your house out for 10 days. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all that kind of stuff. And, and I did, and it's amazing <laughs> for those 10 days. And so, yeah, the, I feel like there's, um, Donald Trump is inevitable in a world where you assume people are trying to not pay, which is pretty consistent with what I've seen at various different income levels. And uh, there are people with tremendous means. Those people are going to find a way. They will always find a loophole. They will always do a thing. They will put a cemetery in their course or buy a bunch of real estate and pay. And um, they will take debt out from banks that they don't have to pay taxes on. Uh, Or they will move to Puerto Rico and they will commute. They will always find a way. So 
Donald Trump lives inside of us. What, yeah, there's a longer conversation that I have to think about, which is I am positive that people, myself, absolutely owe their community money. <laughs> I'm positive that uh, we want to do that. I don't know that our current government is doing it best, but I think it does a f an adequate job of it. So you, there should be some taxes. How much should there be? How should I approach it from an ethical perspective of like, is my goal to reduce my burden or is my goal to hit a certain like, screw it, I need to pay 30% or 40% or 46% or like independent of what I am capable of deducting from my thing, what is correct for me to pay uh, given what I have received from the people around me, the community at large, and also just the fact that people just don't have the means that I have. And even if, even if they haven't earned it, I don't need it as much as they might benefit. Maybe that needs to be a charity section of my thing. So I don't know how to think through this, but, um, yeah, it's just like if you have the government, which is the bad guy trying to claw away, and you have everyone else who's trying to hide, it's like this this shit's inevitable, and it's a bummer. Um, yeah, it seems like there's two teams. Yeah, there's two teams. And and uh, Donald Trump just has more means than everybody else and is yep. unfortunately doing what I think a lot of the entrepreneurship people— Yeah, what a, lot of, what a lot of people in lower brackets would do if they had his means. Yep. And so what you would like is a moral code that didn't— allow you that leeway to, yep. <laughs> to do that if you think that's wrong when you're not making a lot of money if you wake up tomorrow in a new body as a as a donald trump that you would immediately undo all of those things and continue with that forever and ever um so more on the government this is just a big wowza i saw on the uh, news was that the government spending bill for 1.7 trillion mm. it's like a lot of money it's a lot I didn't think we had any, <laughs> and they they got it though, <laughs> and so that's what I have to say about that. Eight hundred billion to the government. Um, one point seven trillion is the one point seven trillion. One eight hundred billion to keep the government from shutting down till September thirtieth, which I didn't know how the government worked because I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, but then looked up, and now I'm an expert again. <laughs> um, which is like they were about to close lockdown on Friday, and they're just like they've done that quite often. They did that when I was 2008, nine, when I was... It's a scary word. Yeah. Government's on lockdown. I was scared. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, nothing other to say than a large portion going to keeping the government and its services going and then uh, $40 billion to Ukraine. So we're still doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's some other things tacked in on in there. It was like 4,000 pages. Um, and then inside of that as well, I think, was the TikTok getting banned from U.S., Oh, it's in there. It's in there. And it's pretty much approved. And it's is already whole, in 20... The whole app is not going to disappear. Let me clickbait here, yeah. Charlie. <laughs> whole app. Uh, no, TikTok is getting banned only on government phones. Oh. And it's... So it made headlines because of TikTok getting banned, but it's only government phones. And it's like all agreed upon. It's basically everyone agrees that it's a... Shouldn't be on your phone. If shouldn't you be on your phone if you're a government official. It at least has some location tracking services that they're not happy about. And they think it's... Uh, Chinese spyware um, so it's a bunch of hoopla but it is happening it's getting banned but on your average phones. user gets to keep it average user will get to keep it yeah yeah I would be I would have been shocked if they stripped that from the me too store. Um, and I think if you have something this is where I want to go into Elon Musk ruining Twitter well okay I know what, that's what do you have I know it's the title that you want to put on this podcast 
No. <laughs> but Elon Musk is ruining Twitter. And so I looked up <laughs> Elon Musk ruining Twitter. And uh, in the same vein of looking at um, active monthly users, yeah. guess how big Twitter is? I have no idea. Okay, guess how big TikTok or Facebook is? Way bigger. Like absurdly Ten big. Ten times, yeah. Like Facebook has 2 billion monthly viewers. Uh, users active active they have like three billion Does that include instagram i have the wikipedia up here and i can put up a list yeah, maybe twitter's on. twitter's tiny uh yeah so no sorry they have 1.93 billion active monthly viewers that's facebook they have the entire yeah. world and then twitter i scroll down they're the number 17th guess how many active users they have 150 mil yeah 200 right? million yeah it's like we're not even in the same ballpark yeah, yeah. so all this news around it is kind of crazy mm-hmm. and then um We've talked a little bit about this off the phone with, uh, or on the phone with our friend, which is all the news coming from Twitter seems like it's imploding. Mm-hmm. Like Elon Musk is not, a, he can land rockets on the moon, but the guy can't run a tech company. He's mm-hmm. firing, uh, I think he fired 5,000 of his 7,000 employees. He's only keeping the software dev teams. People can't get in the building. He's, he's passing these sweeping service rules about no doxing people. Well, that's... I think that's always been a rule, but he's he's ex- widening the scope of what that means yes. a little bit. Yeah, um, and I have some of the other rules, but uh, do you have any thoughts before I go? Sure. The rules. Yeah, my thoughts that you'd said. Um, first thing is that when people say that Twitter is the public square, I think even those numbers illustrate that it's not. If you want to say <laughs> yeah. that the collection of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, etc., like uh, add up to be the public square, sure, but I, I never thought, and if you look back at the podcast, which you don't have to, yeah, the idea that Twitter is the public square and that free speech rests on what is allowed to be said on Twitter, I do not agree with. Um, but also in that vein, some of what you are, I imagine, going to say, I, I think the one thing that I could say, I don't know if Twitter is going to work because the headlines look terrible and then he reverses course the next day constantly. It feels a lot like Donald Trump, which is a lot of bluster, a lot of like being at the front of the headline, but actually um, it's far less tumultuous underneath than it might appear, which, and what I mean is Trumpian about that is that he is just gathering attention constantly, constantly, constantly. And so whether that's on purpose or not, I don't know. Um, But the thing that does feel safe to say is that the highfalutin ideal of him purchasing this to protect free speech does not seem to be borne out in his decision-making. And there was one tweet that I went, okay, I feel like I could put that free speech thing away, which was, we will no longer uh, be like allowing competitors uh, to be, to links, you know, the, the idea that you can advertise a competitor is just absurd. I was like, well, to be clear, Elon, Absurd speech is allowed within the umbrella of free speech. You can be absurd. You are allowed to go to the town square and tell everyone to move to Mexico or that the U.S. sucks. You can burn a flag. Like, that's what free speech is. And so for you to take such an obvious thing because it doesn't support your profits, that is not in protection of free speech at all. And by the way, the idea that you can't link off of a social media site and have it be a hugely profitable enterprise is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This has been explored by every other platform. They all allow it. YouTube figured it out, I think, the best, which is our algorithm is going to privilege time on site. And so if you want to link to another tweet, that's going to indirectly help you because you're in boosting time on site, which boosts our advertisers dollars. You want to link off site to YouTube, be my guest, but that's going to decrease how your account 
uh, the average creates an average time on site. And so we've done that. We link off of our YouTube videos at the end of nearly every single video. We've, we're telling you to go to Audible or to go to Charisma University. And that, I am sure, if we didn't do that, we would have more views on our videos. But we've elected to make the business decision to like depress our views in the algorithm in order to direct people to buy our product. Uh, this is easy. This has been done. You don't need to ban it. You just tell people that what we care about is time on site. And so for him to, even for a day, which I know has been undone, to have that idea emerge from the same brain and mouth that said, I need to do this to protect free speech, that to me is incoherent. Yeah, yeah. Apparently he had a meeting with Meta and it went poorly. And then he's just said, you know what? You can't post on my software anymore for 12 hours. Like some of the machinations of this guy uh, seem, whether it's true uh, is, is a big factor. But yeah, it seems like he's just got vendettas like versus certain reporters mm -hmm. or certain companies. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know what will ultimately happen if you'll turn it out and make this this new web thing where Twitter can do everything and it'll be profitable. But what I do feel fairly safe to put to bed is that this is not about free speech for him. Um, mm. That might have been a small thing. I think his idea of free speech is the speech that he likes. I think that's most people's idea of free speech. And uh, most people collapse under the test of speech that hurts their pocketbook or speech that moves the government in a way that they don't like. Uh then this free speech just disintegrates or under that. They just want more of the speech that they can tolerate, um, but not anything near what the Constitution allows under free speech. Not that it ought to be that. It's, so it's a private social media site. You can have all sorts of terms and conditions, but the idea that you can't link out to me was... Um, that put the nail in the coffin of that, of that ideal being what drove has driven his decision-making. So, Chris Monk, man, <laughs> votes, Twitter, 2023, or explosion? Should I step down as CEO? <laughs> We're going to do a poll. <laughs> yeah, where do you see, do you think Twitter will be better off in five years from now I or worse off? You're not going to put your name on? No, I'm not putting my name in there. Um, I know you want me to make a prediction for uh, clips and, and stuff. Money. I haven't done enough research. I, I have only seen the headlines. The headline would lead you to You're believe. You're betting on Elon. No, here's what I'm betting. I don't know anything about Elon. I don't know anything. I do know that he and reporters seem to hate one another. And so it's tough for me to accept the headlines that I, you know, are written by the reporters that he seems to have a vendetta with. Um, but it's also unimportant for me to know because I don't, I can't buy the stock. I don't plan on buying the stock if it were made public. And we'll see is sort of where I stand. I'm long on Riot Games though. Believe in, okay. I believe in really good legends. <laughs> that That's where we're putting our money. If I could, I would. It's owned by Tencent, though, and uh, I don't want to do that. Let that. me see if there's anything else that I said. Um, oh, I mentioned that Evo Psych thing that I never went back to, but that's okay. It was just the idea of grand narratives back to our conversation about how people often uh, hide their, or they might not even realize they're doing it, their life experience is uh, just hidden in their grand narrative of the world. So one that came up this week is I saw some video, somebody talking about Evo Psych, about how men feel heartbreak worse because of their inbuilt possessiveness. And it's like, this is... Um, I think I saw that. And then there was a clip where a guy was like, did mommy 
<laughs> I didn't see that. Did mommy hurt you? <laughs> it was just like his response to it. It's just like, look, I don't know if men or women on average feel heartbreak worse. I bet you could run that study several times and it could break either way depending on the sample that you took. But to re that is somebody to me that is trying to explain both their heartbreak and their possessiveness as being evolutionarily predetermined and uh, nothing he could do nothing yeah um and also you know to uh you know explain why the person that they broke up with is not hard, really too broken up about it comparatively genius. yeah and it's a genius way to universalize and not explore one's own pain which is i do think what so many worldviews are yeah i think so many worldviews are a way for individuals to not look at the concrete pain that has occurred in their life history and instead to fight against a system out there in other people. And you can tell because of how quickly and how triggered they get upset about the system. Like it, And they will then say, oh, you know, you don't care about the world. No, you don't care about the world. You care about the thing that happened to you that is constantly being re-triggered and re-traumatized that you may go your entire life without ever exploring and looking into. Um and uh, yeah, that's that's what I think about grand narratives. Let me see if there's any other that I'd written in here. Evo Psych, yeah. Um, oh, and the one other that I was going to say is, you know, in terms of my own grand narratives, we've talked a lot about charity. And one of the things that I think that I know came up in my journey was uh, undeservingness and feeling like, yeah, just a deep sense of undeservingness was was like, it was a painful experience. <laughs> it was not a fun one on my second day. Um, day one was great. Day one, I did the best listening of my entire life. I was, I was open space personified. <laughs> I sat there. I'm like, here with you, brother. <laughs> uh, but the second day, I was uh, just in punishment and self-loathing and undeservingness. And I do think that though I've tried to make the best of that in my life outcroppings of that are, you know, the, uh, the interest in charity is part of it. And, you know, the, it's, I certainly feel it in the way that I, uh, separate from people, the way that I give severance, if, um, a business relationship doesn't work out or something like I feel, I think foundationally undeserving, which then bubbles up to a like, ah, I probably didn't earn all of this money or it shouldn't be with me anyway and they seem to want and or need it. And that's not to say that I shouldn't give to charity or offer severance, but it is to say that my strong inclination towards those things is not this rational, perfectly objective, thought-out way that the world no, ought yeah, to you work. You overpay people out the door often i do the same thing also you regularly accept shitty work and then overpay them yeah. as well and be like yeah. and they're they're left feeling confused i know this is in the contractor space you can ask somebody to make like a youtube edit for you very simple one minute i'll pay you money for it and you'll overpay them just to like make them not feel bad about not getting the job because yes and it's not to make them not feel bad foundationally it's to make me not feel bad about them being upset with me uh, and so that's you know, obviously the big lesson is there is, you know, there is outward focus, but really it's like I can't handle the emotions that come up inside of me when they think that I've wronged them. So let me just uh, pay so much. And the, the people that become most difficult for me to work with are the ones that perpetually think that I've wronged them because that is a way to get so much out of me. Because if you will not release that, like if you will not let me off of the hook that I've put myself onto, 
um, you can, yeah, extort a lot of time, effort, and money from me without me even realizing it because I am so uncentered in my what I what type of work is not even what type of work that foundational level of deservingness is rocky now I also want to clarify when you're in these journeys you're not necessarily working with every aspect of who you are you're often blowing up a sub personality or a sub piece so to say that I feel purely undeserving is not true um, there's no, no, you're also egotistical. I'm also, we can, well, that, that could be the, the, uh, the flip side of it. Yeah. But I, I do have a deservingness. I have an undeservingness. I have a big ego. I have all of these things. But what is nice is that in these journeys, you really get to know parts of your personality and to integrate that part back into the whole. If it's, you know, if you are lucky in that journey and it's something that you do after the journey as well, so that it's not unconsciously driving you to make those decisions in the future. But that's, the, I just want to be clear that I don't, um, that is not the entirety of me. It's just this, this feeling of undeservingness and overpaying constantly. There's there's all sorts of other things as well, but this was what got ballooned in that experience for me, and it was unfun, painful, and I saw the ways that it shows up in my life, or some of the ways at least, and it was uh, really uncomfortable. The other thing that I realized, which is good, is that I think of all of the emotions... There's a lot of ones culturally or whatever, you know, I could speak for myself and this might be true for other people. For me, anger, fairly accessible. I think probably true for, you know, this was raised for most men in America. Of the emotions, anger is the one that you are often most, uh, you're okay with. That's the one that isn't like, that's a strong male emotion in many circles. If you don't, if that's not your experience, I don't mean to put that on you, but that's true for a lot of the guys that I know. Things that are not as, um, acceptable are um you know heartache or hurt or tears tears things that would bring tears whether it's tears of joy or tears of sadness um but though there was one emotion that came up that i hadn't been too familiar with which was shame and shame has like a double lid on it because shame is a feeling of not wanting to have the experience or be the thing that you are and so if you already have enough trouble getting into sadness, the shame that you feel about sadness is like double trapped because you got to find the sadness and then you also have to find the resistance to the sadness and this wishing that the sadness, or sometimes you feel just the resistance first before the sadness. Um, and so it was, I also got good visceral felt experiences of shame for a lot of the things that we talked about earlier. Cause like I mentioned being angry with mom and I felt shame for that I felt shame for not being able to um, learn fast enough or do enough to protect her from the difficulty of me suffering so there's like just a lot of experiences of shame that came up and I feel like I now have a template to name that in a way that I didn't when it arises inside of myself which is extremely useful because if I think back to my life people ask like how do you feel I mean like I feel happy I'm sad I'm angry I'm kind of depressed like I have never in my life said I feel shame. Um, and I think that that is not true of my experience. I think it's probably not true of most people's experience, but our inability to feel that as an emotion is speaks to the double trap nature of shame. And if you can't feel it, it's running your life in some way from the shadows. And that's not what, that sucks. Do you You're think much, the flip of the coin emotion of shame is active in you? Or do you think they're both trapped uh, simultaneously? What do you mean the flip of the coin? Uh, I don't know, like anger and <laughs> if you were going to say happiness or joy and like sadness are like 
the deeper you can go sadness. This is what sometimes I've felt in my experiences. Like as I move through the sadness, the great joy that is yeah. on the other side. I'm wondering is, I don't know what the name of the emotion is behind shame. Um, for you, do you think that because shame is locked, that other positive side of shame is also yeah. locked down? And so it might be that undeserving. I don't know. I you think this feel incredibly deserving or incredibly great. Yes. 100%. Yes. Your inability to feel the undeservingness blocks your ability to feel deep, deep deservingness, like spiritual deservingness, not just of money or of severance pay, but of like, I am enough to, and to experience the joy of being alive. Like I deserve to bask in this experience and not have to do more to earn it. Yeah. I totally think that. And I think that, one simplistic way to view what we do with ourselves in our lives through trauma is if life's experiences are, you know, baseline like this, well, we can't handle the low, but we must shrink the high that much as well. And so what you wind up with is a very narrow band and, you know, people will try to just move the top line and it's tougher to do. And sometimes when you have an experience that expands what you're able to experience at the bottom, um, it also opens up the top as well. Yep. And if that doesn't sound appealing to you, the good news is you're dealing with it unconsciously anyway. <laughs> so you might as well bring it to the conscious so that you can bring uh, all the good things to the conscious mind as well. Anything else that we want to add today? Uh, there's some stuff we could go over. Uh, Coffee's on Logan Paul's crypto scam. The only interesting part I found about that is what we mentioned yesterday. So if you don't know... Um, Coffeezilla is blown. He's blowing up with the SBF stuff, but he's also blowing up with this um, deep dive into Logan Paul's Crypto Zoo, which was a crypto project that was supposed to be a game tied in with some eggs that you could hatch and then have some playing cards. People bought it on speculation during the crypto boom a year and a half ago. Um, and he's talking to the dev team on it. He's talking to the... Logan Paul's manager, um, and the video that I, that what you learn is that it's uh, just a failed project, and everyone's pointing fingers about mm -hmm. who ruined what. Was yeah. it the dev team? Was it Logan Paul not funding the dev team? Was it Logan Paul saying that he was going to do more? And so they're replaying clips. The thing I found fascinating is why I kept watching, um, which was you mentioned this yesterday, um, and I'll let you take it, which is this idea of loops and how you build a story that keeps people watching. Um, so yeah, if you can. Okay. Um, yeah, the overall arc, which is in the title, is like you want to find out what happened with Logan Paul and CryptoZoo. And the real question is like, is Logan Paul bad guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And people have vested interest in, yes, he's definitely bad guy. Bad guy. Bad guy. <laughs> uh, but what CoffeeZilla has done well and a lot of the best YouTube creators and Serial does this well is he split it over three parts. And he raises sub-questions. So I forget the question part one, but the part two was like, who is this Eddie Alvarez guy? You know, but, and so he like raises that question at the end of part one and then it starts to answer it. But wait, things aren't adding up. And so he's got all of these little sub-questions, these sub-loops. Um, and I think this is the hallmark of good storytelling is that you want to raise a mystery or a question and actually get to its answer fairly quickly. Some... I'm trying to think of, uh, I don't know. Brandon what Sanderson does this really well. I think that's why I love his mm. books. As he's, you get first scene, 10 pages, you know, like 
you want to know what's happening with this character in this bar in this moment. And but that character and that appearance is going to be solved over a longer period of time mm-hmm. as well as their character deepens. But yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt you. I just realized there's a strong connection with the mini loops. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'll have to remember. There's but there are movies where it's like we have one grand mystery and it's an hour and a half to get it, and the entire middle of the movie is just like pushing back, like oh no, it's not there. God, what, there was there a video out? game that I played that was like this. Um, God of War. And it's some of the middle, especially of God of War 1, is like you want to get this thing and figure out what's going on with Balder or whatever. And it's like, oh, it's not here. Oh, it's not here. Oh, no. And it's just like all of these journeys and trips that don't answer that one underlying question as opposed to, which God of War did better, but still has that middle drag in it, which is like you want to open and close new loops very consistently while allowing the overall arc. And you haven't played God of War 1, but it's like, there's just so much, oh, it's not here. Oh, oh no, what do we do? Like, this isn't the thing. And it doesn't ever give you the answer to the question that it asked. It asks a question at the beginning, answers that question at the end, and in the middle, it's just constantly being deferred. So, yeah, um, that's something that I am paying attention to in our D&D, like, even as a player in D and D, I'm like, oh, I have this cool character backstory thing. I'll hold this off. It's like, fuck, no, I gotta like let this. This has to be a mini arc that plays out in four episodes, as opposed to fourteen, because otherwise that's too long, and we got to find a new mystery starting episode five to drive the the story forward. So that is that has affected some of my play, and I don't want to um, tell me too much. No, no, I just don't want to over drag the like what's going on here. If you raise a you know put Chekhov's gun in in the beginning of uh, the first act, I you actually, I, in my opinion, you want the gun to go off at the end of the first act, not at the end of the third act. Um, so. Am I the gun? Am I the gun? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the gun, dude. Oh. Um, cool. Anything else? No, it feels tight. Dude, let's do it. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you. If you want to join us on Patreon, um, we've got uh, this week's video is actually already up there. We've been doing discussions about what is going on with work for me in the week, and people have enjoyed some of the deep dives into what we're doing, with, especially with D&D, um, and also some Charisma on Command stuff we also talked about today uh, or on this week's. So if you want to support the podcast on Patreon, get a whole bunch of other stuff. People seem to really enjoy it, and it would mean a lot. So check it out in the link below. Uh, or in the show notes. That's it for today. We appreciate you guys. Peace. Peace.